0: Well, Yenzi, another young U.S. cyclist on the podcast today. Fresh off of finishing his first ever Tour de France, recovering, going straight into Classica San Sebastian and being in the front group, and then capping it off this last weekend in Glasgow with a great breakaway representation for the U.S. and top 20 finish. Kevin Vermarca joins us. What did you think of the
1: chat? It was fantastic, especially to have somebody straight out of the world championships because they were so hard, so spectacular. And I was just curious to hear from somebody that was inside of all the carnage and action. So it was absolutely fantastic. And he's a pretty good talker as well.
0: Can you imagine, do you think he's like re-watching it right now to see how big of a boss he looked on tv being in the front with those guys i mean that course was insane but probably one of the most entertaining races i've seen only it was started to be entertaining with over 150 kilometers to go and he was there in the breakaway the 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 real special part for me that i hope he goes back and watches if he hasn't seen it before is when he got to come through the line as the leader Of the race with like, I think that was four or five laps to go.
1: But that must have been something special. For sure, it was special for him. And very sure, it gave him that idea in the back of his mind. Maybe in two years time, I actually can do the same thing with only one lap to go and maybe go for the big one. I mean, he's still young. You mentioned it. 22 years old only. So, yes, he has a chance of actually one day running a podium, become a medalist at the world championships. You hit it up the nail on the head there, Yenzi. So
0: please sit back, relax, and enjoy our conversation with Kevin Vermark. All right, everyone. You saw him on TV last Sunday with the Stars and Stripes showing it with pride, strength, character, Kevin Vermarka. Welcome to Bobby and Yen's.
2: Hey guys, uh, thanks for having me on.
0: Man, you know, normally we kind of build in to the podcast. But that was such an amazing race last Sunday, and you were such a major part of it. We got to just start with that. We got to geek out on that, because that, to me, was one of the most fun, exciting races to watch on TV. And I won't lie to you. um, I got up a little bit late. I missed the protest. I missed you getting into the break, but I didn't miss you coming onto to the circuits with a five minute lead or four and a half minute lead so yeah man give us give us the rundown to those of us that missed it uh what that protest was like how that time you know i guess it was almost an hour that you guys had to sit around you know like what you guys did and then once it started for you to jump into the breakaway
2: yeah so it's uh yeah it's uh i mean feels like so much happened over the weekend um you know worlds is already a one of the longest races on the calendar but uh with an extra hour waiting around for the protest it, it felt extra long this year um i think it was about maybe 70k into the race um we just yeah the commissaire stopped us and they didn't let us up to the protesters so we we're probably 100 or 200 meters down the road and you know actually didn't see the the people on the road but um You know, they told us they had glued themselves. Initially, that's what they said to the road, and uh, the police were coming. I guess the race wasn't allowed to—the race organizers weren't allowed to touch the protesters, so they had to call in the police and uh, wait for them to come. And then, yeah, I mean, you know, you you expect it to take five, maybe ten minutes to to get these guys off the road and and for the race to restart, but in the end, it was uh, 50 minutes that we were waiting there on the road. And luckily, it wasn't raining, because if it had been raining, it would have been— crazy i don't know what they would have done because it was pretty you know it wasn't cold but it was pretty chilly especially when you were stopped for 10 20 and you I know, mean, almost an hour on the road it got pretty cold so yeah luckily it wasn't raining but you know i think being in the breakaway we could make the most of it and uh you know for for me we we all all of us in the all nine of us in the in the break we hopped in the commissaire car actually after like 10 15 minutes because it was pretty cold and you know wanted to get off our feet and, and stay warm so we hopped in the car and yeah it was a pretty good uh pretty good atmosphere everyone was in a good mood and you know i think it was probably as to the break i'd say um the whole stopping and the and the protest but yeah never never encountered a protest in a race before so it was a little a little strange
1: um talking about um that uh, protest now um, I was commentating on a race, so I saw it all live from the first, second, uh, the entire race. Um, I felt they gave you a minute less than you had before you stopped. Didn't you get there with like some eight minutes and then he let it go after six? I think it was for sure at least a minute you lost because of whatever the commissaires are unable to control it. What's, what's your point of view there?
2: Yeah, I, I agree with you. We definitely got robbed there. Um <laughs> about 3k before we stopped we had the latest time check and it said eight minutes um and then when they stopped us they were saying six minutes 50 and uh yeah you can't really argue there's not much uh, say that you have there but uh definitely feel like we got a bit uh a bit short changed there um but then again also when you when you stop like that then once the race gets going um you know if we just pin it right out of the gun in the break then you know we have that six minutes 50 seconds to you know, to open the gap up more while the Peloton was still standing there waiting around. So, um, you know, I think we we made that minute back up. But yeah, it would have been nice to to start with the eight instead of the six minutes, 50.
0: But how do you do that? How do you get into the break at the World Championships, stop for an hour, jump in the commissaire's car? I don't know what you guys were chatting about, but that must have been pretty funny. But like, From the physiological standpoint of being warm and having all those, you know, the adrenaline pumping, glucose going through the roof, and then all of a sudden you stop, were you thinking about how am I going to start back up from this? I mean, did you, you know how it feels when you stop for a coffee in the middle of a ride, like your legs just feel like wood for, you know, 15, 20 minutes again after that. Um, Were you guys like talking about it or you know, what, what,
2: what was going through your head, Going sitting, sitting in the commissary's car for that long? Yeah. I mean, we definitely, we knew it was going to be a hard restart, especially with the, the main climb on the run-in only came maybe 5k after, after we had stopped. So, um, it was a pretty fast little downhill section and then straight into a climb. Um, so we definitely knew it was going to be a hard start and that the, yeah, you'd feel the legs of it on that climb. But, um, I think out of that group I was maybe one of the better climbers so I think that also worked in my advantage that I could ease into it a bit more on the climb um but I mean it was the same for everyone you know everyone was stopped there and everyone kind of had that rude awakening when the race restarted so for me I was more just you know thinking and thinking about getting in you know hydration and food and you know that's an extra hour that we were out on the road so just making sure I wasn't Forgetting to eat and drink and just like I would in the race because you know that can that, that comes around to, to bite you in the
1: butt five hours later when you're in the final. So did you had like your your coach or sport director coming up to you and go, Hey, Kevin, you need to eat, you need to drink this, you need to drink a protein shake or more carbohydrates, or you had it all in your own mind and counting the calories you need, or you had some outside advice since you were sitting there for an hour almost. Yeah, I uh it was mo- mainly just us in the
2: break uh you know and me eating the food that i had in my pockets and and uh you know i got a i got a fresh bottle actually from the the latvian coach came up and uh he had extra banana and and a coke and some extra gels and stuff for all of us so yeah it was pretty everyone was you know sharing and you know the coaches and directors from other teams were handing out bottles too and it was a uh, yeah everyone was working well together because also in the you know in, together in the breakaway we were all from different nations but we all wanted to work together to try and make it as deep into the race as we could so yeah it was a good a good little group we had there and i think we uh made the most of our our break
0: yeah definitely but okay now you're coming on to the circuits um everybody knew for the last you know a couple months or even a year that this circuit was challenging to say the least 40 some odd turns all the steep climbs all the technical bits and bobs when you got on the circuits was it did did anything change like was it all of a sudden the mentality of hey let's stick together as long as we can or were you already looking for those little weak
2: spots with the guys in the breakaway with you i think when we came onto the circuits we i mean we still had about a five minute gap um but that i mean that was the whole reason i was in the breakaway to be honest um just knowing those circuits, and especially after I'd pre-written the, the course a couple days before and really seen how technical it was and just, you know, it, it was relentless. And, and being in the break, I think, was a massive advantage there. Um, and that was my, my big goal going in the day, to, to make it up the road. And I think in the long-term, it actually saved so much energy, even though we were out front and pushing for that 120K beforehand, um, you know, the mental stress and nervous energy that everyone else was spending going into those circuits was you know costing them a lot of energy too so you know we knew that in that 10k kind of before we got to the circuit the, the peloton would really accelerate everyone was basically doing a full lead out to to get there uh in front you know still with 150k to go in the race so we made a bit of an effort there to really pin it and, and keep the speed high so we didn't lose too much time but we expected to lose a minute or so just in that yeah, couple k before the circuit but once we got onto the circuit, we just kept it pretty, pretty steady. I, we didn't really push. I mean, we were still all working well together, and no one was surging or, or attacking or anything. And um, you know, the gap was coming down pretty, pretty steadily. Um, you know, pretty quickly. We were losing about thirty seconds every every half lap or so. Um, and I was actually thinking in the break, you know, you know, maybe we should push a bit more now. I, I thought it was coming down too fast, but. Every time we'd go through the feed zone we could see on the big screen um you know that the the peloton was already just you know in pieces and and all the carnage that was happening riders attacking and big names attacking too i mean i saw peterson and al philippe on the screen and i thought okay you know we can just relax we don't have to to stress too much you know even if the race does come back to us a little sooner than i would have liked that they're already going to be the group's already going to be small ones so yeah, we kept it uh, fairly easy for the first couple laps in the circuit.
1: Now, we, we talked about the circuit now already. And um, more than one rider went to the press and said, I, I believe this circuit is limit of being too dangerous. Too many corners, too whatever, steep up and downhills. Um, what's your opinion on, on that one? I mean, my opinion, I, I loved it to be honest. I think it was a pretty cool
2: circuit. Um, you know, having all the fans there in Glasgow and the punchy climbs and you know the technical aspect of it i think it was you know definitely changed the dynamic of the race a lot especially compared to the races that we do the you know the entire season but i think for a world championships it was pretty a pretty good course and i think you know if you look back and watch the race it i think it it proved a worthy winner and you know in the end the the big favorites were all there and the race really came down you know to to who deserved to be a world champion you know it wasn't like there was a, a fluke winner or you know the race was completely changed by luck or anything like that i think for sure you needed some luck with with the corners and especially the rain made it pretty slippery but um overall i i thought it was a pretty pretty good world championship route i mean it was a great world championship for team usa
0: what were your guys' tactics going into that race? Was it for you to be in the break and then the rest of the guys like Lawson and Larry and the the other guys work for Nielsen? Or yeah, give us the the rundown of the pre-race tactic.
2: Yeah. So obviously we don't, you know, we didn't have the maybe an A tier favorite. Um but Nielsen is, you know, proven himself in the, in the one-day races. He's had some great results all year. And, you know, last year, or two years ago in Leuven, he was fourth. Um, so he was our, our main leader for the day. And we wanted to have him deep into the final. And the goal for the rest of us was just to, you know, to try and get up the road and, and really anticipate the race so that we could be with, with Nielsen then into the final. Um, and the guys like Will and Larry did a great job to, to position Nielsen coming into the circuit. And yeah, me being in the break was, you know, our goal was to, for me to come deep into the race and, and try and anticipate moves. And, you know, like that's why I attacked from, from the break after a couple laps on the circuit. We, our gap had come down to 30 seconds. And, you know, instead of waiting for that group and, and then trying to follow the big attacks on the climbs where, you know, when Vanderpoel and Peterson and, and those guys are attacking, it's going to be a lot harder to follow than if I can, you know, slip away on my own and, and uh and then have them ride up to me which which is what ended up happening and especially on that course you know it was a good course to be solo you could save a lot of energy in the corners and and uh you know the climbs were steep enough that you know there was not much drafting effect and i mean there were really only 3 or 4k on the whole circuit where you could really you know get an organized chase going or just really burn yourself out in the wind so you know i think i could Anticipate the race a bit with that solo move and, and try and save some energy and then have that group bridge up to me. And, you know, that was kind of my my way of anticipating the race and and trying to, to come deeper into the final for, for Nielsen to ride up to me.
1: Was there ever a discussion to shorten the race by one or two laps because you lost one hour time, which is some two or maybe two and a half laps even? Was there ever talks about that to shorten the race so you would still arrive at six p.m. and not at seven p.m. or at five p.m.? Or you don't initially, know any about that? Yeah, initially I had heard some people talking about it,
2: but it was never a, it was never a like real conversation. I think. I mean, the plan was still to to do the full ten laps, and um, yeah, we, I mean, we started at nine thirty in the morning, and I think we only finished at five. So I think they, you know, they planned for a little bit of extra leeway. Um, but yeah, there was there was never a real conversation to shorten the race. And I think, uh, especially at the World Championships, you know, you need that that full distance to really t- to make it count, you know. Well, watching it on
0: TV at one time, you guys had like, I don't know, 150K to go. And then all of a sudden it went up to like 164K to, to go. And I'm like, wait a second, did they just add a lap? Like, talk about taking away a lap. I was just like, that would be terrible if they all of a sudden added a lap, but it was just obviously a miscalculation on the, on the screen. But I'm interested because like we, 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 they had some amazing camera angles on this circuit. Slow-mo, you could see who was up there and stuff like that. But where do you think the main difference was made on this course? Was it the corners or the
2: climbs? I think it was the climbs. Um, And you know, it was, you know, it's funny because even a year ago, when I think the course came out, it was, think the initial thought everyone had was oh it's a sprinter's course and you know it it looks flat on paper and not much climbing overall but you know when you get onto those circuits and you see those climbs I mean they were short but they were pretty steep and you definitely felt them and you definitely felt them after 250k so I think the climbs really made a difference in the end.
1: And no, you were still in the front group by that time but I believe second lap of the circuit team Denmark went up the up the front was like I believe five. Um, I know it's not your team, but what do you think? Like, like I t- I still try to understand modern cycling now. Um, what was their plan? They had five riders, 150 kilometers to go, which means it's 30 kilometers tempo riding for each one of these five. How in the name of God did they ever think this could work? And then Mats Pedersen attacks. Then. About art attacks on top of him where did they want it to go with like a hundred or a hundred minutes to go? Is this normal these days or were you surprised by that as well? I mean, I think
2: it's, you know, nowadays it just seems normal and it's, you know, it is crazy and it, it doesn't seem, you know, it doesn't seem logical, but I mean, I think the days of the, the worlds where everyone would set off and, you know, a big break would go and get 15 minutes and everyone would kind of wait for that last 50K. Uh, yeah, those days are gone and I mean the racing is just so aggressive now and it really it it kicks off almost from the gun i mean you you never you you can't you can't be surprised by by anything and you know especially on a course like that and and in a race like that i think you know those big those big guys they really just want to make the race as hard as possible early on and then you know that really kind of separates separates the uh the field out pretty quickly and, and makes a selection and only the strongest can can follow you know so that's uh kind of gets rid of the the you know also teammates for the other guys you know if they can get rid of teammates for for Belgium and for the Netherlands I think that was uh, the goal of the Danish riders and yeah it's just uh, I mean yeah it's crazy but you don't even you know like when you when these guys are attacking with 100k to go I don't they're not thinking about how far is left or you know what what's coming up on the course or you know that climb that's 3k away it's just full gas in that moment and uh You know i love it i think that's you know that's racing and especially on a course like that it was just pure racing you know it was you know i mean tactics definitely played a role but at a certain point it's just you know you saw all these favorites throwing haymakers left and right and you could follow or you couldn't and that's uh yeah that's kind of how it unfolded
1: and quick quick question bobby sorry um when you guys entered the circuit the first time i don't think in the entire peloton There were only World Tour riders left. There was nobody there from Azerbaijan or from Vatican City. or They were all gone. In the relatively easy part leading into the circuit, you guys went so fast that every non-super professional was already basically gone by the first time they entered the race. And then first lap, second lap, you saw Kaspar Asgreen abandon. One lap later, Peter Zagarin, some big names. So yes, the race was super hard. Just wanted to say that. Bobby, go. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, you guys were teeing off on each other, and it, it was fun to watch, but <laughs> painful at the same time, because I'm like, ooh, this is going to sting the last couple laps for sure. But to our viewers and listeners that don't know, you guys didn't have radios. How were you guys getting communication or, you know, those crowds were so massive. Could you hear anybody yelling things to you on the side of the road or... Was it just like, hey, this is raw racing right now? I have no idea what's happening. I'm just gonna pull out the big stick and, and aim for the fence.
2: Yeah, it was definitely a little bit, a little bit chaotic at times because it, you get so used to relying on the radio for information about feed zones and what's coming up on the course, and you know, you know what group's chasing you, who's left in the peloton, and you know, we had no information. Even with the time gap for the break, we only have the you know the uh the chalkboard that the moto holds up and you know it could be it could be 10k in between in between updates on the time gap so it, it it's not very accurate and you never really know how much time you have or who's in the group chasing you um how many riders are left and, and information like that so um all right we had in the feeds on the usa uh team was was trying to to hold up a, a whiteboard with you know different different information but it was so hard to see and you know you go through there so fast that it was almost impossible to make anything out so i mean for me i was really relying on the the big screens that are set up around the course and um you know the live stream that that's shown to all the fans there to to get updates on what was happening and to try and get a glimpse of the peloton and see who was left or who was chasing and, and stuff like that because yeah you, you have no information so you know even when our our break was was about to get caught and we had only 25 seconds um i didn't know if that was to the peloton or to five riders or 10 riders or or what was going on so it's definitely pretty chaotic um and you know it adds an element of uh yeah an element of an unknown to to the race that the other races don't have because you know normally it's so controlled and and so much information and everyone knows what's going on but you know here you don't have that and i think it, it definitely affects the race
1: um talking about the circuit and the steep climbs what was the gears you guys used for this um, for this race uh to be honest i'm i'm not a big
2: uh i'm not too big of a tech guy i'm i'm pretty sure we had a 54 32 on um, 32 on the back and the 54 36 on the front i think um, but i'm not 100% sure um I, I trust the mechanics, and
1: uh, I just try and uh,
2: make the bike go fast.
1: That was always the difference between Bobby and me. I was so like you. I would always go, hey, what does the team captain go? In my case, Cancelara. Yeah, I do the same. Bobby was, like, really precise about all his stuff. And i like, I don't care. I do what Cancelara does. So Come on, yeah. we didn't have that many options.
0: I mean, our climbing gear was a 25. Maybe a true seven. Now like thirty-twos, yeah. thirty-fours. I mean, it's a totally different ball game. But Kevin, it there was a moment when you were away, you said you attacked the break, and there was this frontal view of you coming through the start finish with the stars and stripes jersey on that gave me goosebumps. And I was just wondering, I was like, I wonder if he I wonder what he feels like right now, crossing through. And yes, there was a few laps to go. We know that you didn't win the race. But that had to have been a special moment, no?
2: Yeah, it was pretty cool. Um, You know, it's every time you pull on the Stars and Stripes and you represent your nation at the Worlds, it's a really big deal. And, um, you know, getting to race with your national team teammates who... You know, you see at other races throughout the year, but you're always on different teams and, and racing against each other. It's really cool to race with them. And yeah, you know, to know all your, your friends or family back home are watching and, and cheering you on for your country. It's uh, definitely a big honor. And yeah, it was it was awesome. I mean, the crowds were so supportive and so many Americans out on the road and you see the American flag everywhere and you hear your name and, and it really just gives you a ton of adrenaline. So, yeah, it was a pretty cool feeling to uh, to be out there.
1: Uh, generally speaking, it seemed like the backing of that whole Super World Championships, which is almost like an Olympics just for cycling in Glasgow, uh, like big support by the by the crowd, by the audience, right? Or is it just a feeling I had on my TV screen? But it seemed like the people were really loving it. They were really into it, no? Yeah, no, they definitely were into it.
2: And, in you know, it's it, it was pretty cool. Um, you know, everyone on the road was, was into the race and, You know, seemed to know what was going on and, and, uh, yeah, everyone was was keen on it, I think. But, uh, you know, it it did just feel like a normal world championships, to be honest, because, you know, there's been all this talk about the super worlds and, you know, it's weird now to be home and, you know, already back home from the race and, and still watching the races on TV. But even seeing or hearing about the mountain bike races and the track races, you know, we didn't see any of that it just felt like a, you know the road race was only you know the time trial and the road race were the only events going on because everything's so spread out and the teams are staying apart and uh yeah you don't, you don't you don't see the mountain bikers or the you know the bmx guys or the the you know paralympic uh track guys so it, it definitely just felt like a normal road worlds in that regard but um yeah i mean i think all the events are getting getting incredible support and it's definitely gonna be cool to to watch on TV now and and have experienced it myself and, and know what those guys are
1: going through. We'll be back after this short break.
0: Now back to our chat with Kevin. Well, I tell you, Kevin, I could sit here, we could sit here forever and just ask you more and more questions about the worlds, but we're talking about the end product you know, you at the World Championships. But I went back and said, okay, how did he prepare this? How did he manage his season? And I have to say, I was blown away. And I had to write this down because in January, you started with the Tour of San Juan, February, Vuelta Argarve. March, you did Paris-Nice. Then you went into Milan-San Remo, the Cabo Classics, plus the Ardennes Classics then finally you had a month break before starting up with the tour of norway and then in june the tour de swiss and then the tour de france um not to mention that you had what five or six days of recovery with san sebastian before the worlds so can you please explain back to jens's point about this new generation how you could take such a big workload finish your first tour de france 6 days later be in the top you know in the in the in the front top 20 21st in in a, a hard race like uh classic san sebastian and then a few days after that be in the front in probably one of the hardest races ever according to some of the guys that finished on the podium
2: yeah it's been uh i mean i think i'm at 62 race days now for the year um which is way more than you know i think t- I'm already. I already beat my uh, previous race day record by about 20 days. I think. Um, so it, yeah, it has been a, a long season already. But I actually I feel pretty fresh actually, um, and I think I had a nice kind of build up into the start of the season. Um, you know, kind of got the European races kicking off with Algarve and then Perry Nice, and um, you know the the one day classics were. I I got a bit of a cold and flew there, and you know those. Those didn't exactly go to plan, but uh, after the Ardennes, I was able to take a bit of a break. Um, I went back home to, to the U.S. to uh, take a month off from racing, um, take a couple days off the bike. I actually got COVID after Liège, um, and then you know, kind of restart my training again, get a good three-week block in back home before heading to tour Norway, um, which kind of helped me take my form up another step to Swiss, um, which kind of b- led me into the tour in a really good way. And the tour was kind of the goal of the whole the whole season you know from december camp already i was looking at that as a big objective and and with the team wanting to make sure i came there in the best the best possible shape and i think uh you know luckily with norway and swiss and you know i was able to stay healthy and avoid any crashes and and really recover from those races so that i could go into the tour in the in some of my best shape you know best form ever and uh i had no idea what to expect to be honest because i'd you know, I started the tour last year, but unfortunately I broke my collarbone on stage eight. So I'd never done a race longer than eight days. And, and going into a grand tour, it's a big, uh, a big unknown, you know, three weeks of, of racing full gas every day, big volume. Um, and you know, once I got into that second week, every day was, was just an unknown, you know, I'd wake up and wasn't sure how I'd feel or how I'd feel on the bike. And, you know, going into that third week, there's some big mountain stages coming up, but I was you know i think i surprised myself a bit with how well i was able to recover and and bounce back every day and especially in the third week i was you know setting some some of my all-time power records so i think that was a big uh kind of eye-opener to me on how much load my body could take and you know how well i could handle that kind of racing and yeah after the tour i you know just had a week with my girlfriend on the here in the Costa Brava in spain and you know recovered really well soaked up the soaked up the tour had a few training days to kind of keep the legs moving and then went to san sebastian and had the best legs of my life there um you know and and then at worlds this past week and i had even better legs so it's just kind of being this like stair step since the tour where i've just you know felt really good felt like i've recovered and you know every race i seem to be taking a step up so it's pretty it's giving me a lot of confidence and you know i'm still chasing that uh, elusive first pro win and you know really that kind of you know, headlining result to really be the cherry on top of all the work that's been put in. But yeah, I mean, the the numbers that I've seen and, and the feeling I've had in those big races, I mean, it's given me a lot of confidence. And I think, um, yeah, I've definitely grown a lot this season.
1: Um, coming out of a Grand Tour strong is a very good quality to have. So it's really promising. That's a really good quality to have. Uh, but at the Tour de France, I was there uh, for Eurosport GCN on a motorbike in the middle week. And I experienced, I felt so sorry for you guys the day Roman Bade crashed. And there was a bit of confusion. When I was there on my bike, we stopped relatively close to it because everybody had to stop after the crash. So I looked at Roman and went, oh, I don't know if he can keep going. And then they let us all go past the crash site. And then I caught on my motorbike, of course, all of you guys, you all waited for him. And I'm like, oh no, oh no, oh no, I don't think he's keep going and you all wait for him. I felt so sorry. That must have been a terrible, hard day for you guys. I mean, mentally to lose Roman Bade and also physically because then you were all dropped and had to chase back without even Roman on your wheel. Wasn't that a terrible day? We can talk about better things in a second, but I was just, I felt so sorry for you guys on that day. Yeah,
2: that was a, that was a brutal day. Um, I mean, especially for the team, you know, our, our big goal was, you know, to go to the tour and to do a, a good GC result with Roman and, and try and fight for the podium and, you know, be in the top five in Paris. And, uh, yeah, I was, I was two wheels behind him when he crashed and it was just a super high speed corner. Everyone locked up the brakes and, yeah, he went down super hard and, you know, I, I stopped immediately. And as soon as I looked in his eyes, you know, I could see that, you know, he had a concussion and, he, he was responding but he wasn't you know fully there and i think the yeah it was pretty clear that he wasn't gonna was gonna keep racing um in that moment and yeah you know the break was still going and you know for in that moment the the race stops for our team you know for a couple minutes while we're trying to figure out what to do but in the front of the race they are still going full gas um and you know that day was especially brutal i think yumbo a breakaway never even really went away that day yumbo just went full gas the whole day and um, you know, once it was clear that, that Roman was, uh, was done, I, I tried to chase back and I almost made it back to the, to the front group, but then the race completely exploded and, and, uh, it was, a uh, yeah, tough day just rolling into the finish with the group proto and yeah, knowing you lost your leader and that, you know, the, the rest of the race is you know, your goals are going to have to change. It was pretty, it was a pretty rough day.
0: You know, rough days happen in this sport a lot. You found out on stage eight of the Tour de France last year when you broke your collarbone. You went through this with with Roman Bardet. What was the highlight? What was the positive, like, magic moment? We all know you're in a purple patch of form right now, and you should ride that wave all the way to the beach, and maybe we'll talk about your program coming up afterwards. But what was your highlight of the 2023 tour after having to um,
2: deal with losing your your leader? I think for me, the highlight was, uh, having my, my family and, you know, my mom and dad, my sister, and my girlfriend, they all came out to, uh, to support me and, and seeing them on the side of the road was pretty, pretty cool. Um, it's, you know, especially after last year on stage eight was actually the, the day my parents had flown over from the U S last year was the, the day I crashed and broke my collarbone. So they, they had just arrived and, you know, we're going to follow the race and, and then it was over already. Um. So I was definitely, you know, leaving the tour early like that was really, you know, something that kind of stayed in the back of my mind the whole winter, the whole off-season. Um, you know, I was thinking about it, thinking about the tour, coming back and making it to Paris. And, uh, yeah, you know, finishing the tour, rolling onto the Champs-Élysées was pretty pretty iconic. I mean, I think it's a big moment for any cyclist. And, uh, you know, to kind of put those demons to bed that I had faced last year with having the, to DNF on Stage 8, that was really special for me. And I think, you know, it was kind of the, the crowning achievement of a tour that, you know, results wise was pretty, was pretty barren for our team, you know, after losing Bardet. And then, um, you know, we, we also had a a good sprint train there with Sam Wellsford, who we really were trying to go for stages with and, you know, we couldn't quite get it to click and, and, uh, you know, that looks, yeah, you know, results wise, it wasn't the best year we've ever had, but, uh, we had a really good group of guys at that tour and everyone got on really well. You know, we all fought for each other. Everyone gave the all every day. And, um, yeah, I think when we rolled into Paris, we were, you know, we were proud of the effort we put in and yeah, it, especially for me personally, I was proud to make it to Paris. Cause it was, a uh, yeah, felt like a long year kind of waiting and looking forward to that tour. And, you know, always in the back of your mind, you're thinking, you know, you know, there's so many crashes happening every day, guys getting sick, all this. And you're just thinking, man, I really, I can't leave the tour again. Like this year, I have to finish. And that was always kind of motivating me and, and, and keeping me going. So rolling in the champs Elysees really was special.
0: Yeah, and I got to ask family.
2: you a question
0: because what he just said blows my mind and goes back to your question about this new generation. He just told us that he's been thinking about the Tour de France. He's not even 23 yet. And that's his objective for the year. And in our time, you didn't even have a chance to do the Tour de France in your early 20s. So that's just another example. These teams are already giving this sort of responsibility, this honor of being pre-selected for the Tour de France in December
1: in their early 20s. It blows me away. Yes, it does. Um, When I I was a lead Neo Pro, I was 27 when I actually had my first contract. And I was not on a plan for the two. I made myself into the team, but I was not on a plan for that, not as a as a neo-pro, uh, as a young kid. But it seemed to work these days, right? I mean, if you look at all the results these young superstars have, like, whatever, Pitcock and um, Wout van Aert and uh, Pogacar, it seemed to work, right? Uh, these days, sport uh, cycling is a sport for young kids. <laughs> Back in our days, it was more, you got to be at least 28 or 29 Until 33, and then you're already old and retire. Totally different world. But I also have to say, these kids, this generation, they go so much better and it's more spectacular than we ever did in our days, Bobby. Right? Oh yeah. Um,
0: I mean, the youth that is being used. You know, the the leaders. You know, you were what the second or third youngest starter of the Tour de France this year. Um, You know that that just what that just wasn't even a topic back in our day. Um, but it, it's it's great to see. And it's great to see that you obviously come from a lineage of cycling. And just a side note, that's so awesome that your parents got to come back and actually watch you in Paris instead of taking you to a hospital on the eighth stage. But the lineage that you've had, your father was a cyclist. You got On to Axel Merckx's team. Who it's his 50th birthday, I believe, today or 51st. So we got to wish Axel happy birthday. Um, You get on a great team like Sunweb and then DSM. But Kevin, how did it start for you? How when did it click that this is something that you wanted to do? Knowing now that you're eight years into this massive experience of this young career and got most, if not all, of your career left ahead of you. But when did you say,
2: "This is what I want to dedicate my life to"? Uh, Pretty early, I think. I mean, I was always riding bikes, and and like you mentioned, I mean, my dad came from uh, a—he raced when he was a junior. Um, He actually grew up in South Africa, but his dad was from Belgium and immigrated to South Africa in his early twenties. So, cycling was always something that was in his family. And you know, when he started racing, he he moved to Belgium and uh, lived there for a couple of years, racing in the junior and amateur circuit um he never he never turned pro but he was a pretty good junior and um especially on the track he had a silver medal in the junior worlds um in 91 i think when they were in uh, colorado springs um and uh he you know even though he never made it pro he was still loved mountain biking and, and riding on the road um and when i When I came along, you know, that was just something my dad and I always did together. And on the weekends, you know, go out for a mountain bike ride. We're really lucky to have some incredible trails near our house. And we just go for, you know, 5, 10, 15 mile rides and, uh, just slowly, you know, I always wanted to do more and do bigger rides, put loops together. And, and, uh, you know, we had this, uh, local mountain bike race called over the hump and, uh, actually i think it was in 2011 uh, peter Sagan came out to to the race with cannondale i think because he was riding for cannondale at the time and they were the one of the sponsors that put on this race series and i i have no idea why he was in why he was in southern california at that time but he i think it was just for a sponsor engagement but he came out to this race and uh you know at the time i didn't know anything about road racing or the world tour or even the tour de france but um it was kind of this local grassroots mountain bike race where I I picked up racing and ever since then I've kind of had the bug for it. And like you mentioned, I've had, you know, the, I'm very super grateful to have had the chance to ride on some amazing teams like action and, and Lux, um, with Roy Nickman and even, you know, on the mountain bike, a, a program called whole athlete. So, um, I was very lucky to have, you know, good support ever since I was a junior. Um, and it's really, As an American rider trying to come over and and race in Europe, it's, it's crucial. And I think, uh, you know, the, the amazing programs that do exist do a great job, but it's unfortunate there's not more because there's so many kids, you know, racing in the U S that, you know, just need that one chance or one opportunity to come and, you know, make it a career for themselves. But it's really, you know, it's a, it's a hard pathway. Um, but I was, I was lucky to have some help along the way.
1: Um, so now we talked about how you get into cycling, your great year you had so far. Where do you see Kevin Fairmark in two years or next year or three years? You want to try a little bit of GC or breakaway specialist for the long one-day classics. Where do you think, where do you see your future?
2: I think I've had a couple of years now on the world tour. Um, it's already, This is already my third season. So I've, you know, I start to feel like I'm getting a little... I'm, I'm, I've been around the block a couple times, but, uh, you know, at the same time, I still have so much to, to figure out and, you know, physically to develop, I think. So, um, you know, DSM has put a lot of faith in me and trust and they have a good, you know, a good program set up for me where I can kind of find what races suit me, what races don't suit me. Um, and, you know, I think I kind of see myself going down a pathway of, uh, Ardennes classics kind of hard one day race specialist and, you know hopefully winning some stages at the tour or other grand tours and um, yeah also being versatile enough to help a gc leader or help out in a sprint train and um, you know kind of be an asset at at any race i go to i think that's something that's pretty valuable these days when you know you can see guys like pogachar they they can win every type of race it doesn't matter if it's flat or if it's you know if it goes up the tourmalet i mean they can just do it on any any terrain and i think that's kind of a skill that a lot of young and up and coming cyclists are having, you know, where they can be versatile on any terrain, and and that's something that I also want to want to try and use to my advantage. Yeah, you get
0: one to go back a, a step. I have a question for you because we had Matteo Jorgensen on on the podcast, and he mentioned, you know, the support that he got from USA Cycling to kind of get his career started, and we kind of glossed over that because. I believe that you were also part of that generation of guys that got a lot of support by USA Cycling and actually lived over in Belgium for a while, right? Um, Can you talk a little bit of the importance of that? Because when I was a junior, we had amazing support from the United States Cycling Federation, the USCF, which is now known as USA Cycling. And there was some amazing junior development. And it just seems like when that program is well-funded and right. They bring riders over to the U S and, and bring them to that house. And I think it's in sitard is, is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, that good things happen. Guys like you, Mateo, Larry Warboss, you know, the names go on and on. Um, tell me a little bit about your support that you've received from USA cycling over the years, as well as in this past world championships.
2: Yeah. USA cycling definitely played a big part. Um, I mean, I remember when I was, when I was still a 15, 16, um, I was on a, a local team out of, uh, Southern California called, uh, VeloSport. And, uh, you know, they had a little three-day training camp every winter for, for the guys on the team. And, um, that year at the camp, um, Billy Innis came and gave a talk to, to all of the young kids that were there. And, you know, he kind of just explained his role as a kind of director of the national team and, uh, you know, how, how we could get the chance to go ride in Europe. And, you know, he explained these things called cremesses and, you know, what, what kind of, he kind of explained what racing was like in Europe. And, uh, you know, that was all brand new news to, to all the kids in that room at the time. And I think he, you know, just him kind of coming to that camp and giving that talk, it really, you know, I kind of see that as a pivotal moment in my, in my career, just because it opened my eyes to, to what USA cycling was doing. And, the opportunities that were out there so at the end of that year i was able to go on a, a three-week trip to belgium um with usa cycling for 15 16s and there we just did you know two cremesses a week and you know we stayed in cider and and trained and kind of it was kind of like summer camp you know the first time away from home over in europe and you know you're with your friends and yeah it was it was a good time and you know the racing was brand new and super hard and you know i think especially you know coming from the u.s i I think you see especially in juniors that you know the the u.s riders have a tendency to be super strong so i mean we went over there and i think uh the first cremesse i did i i crashed in the first corner and then uh, the second cremesse the next day i think the u.s guys went one through five or something we all just rode away off the front so it was uh it's definitely a a an eye-opening trip to you know what racing was like in europe what it was like to live away from home for the first time you know how to pack your bag to go to a race how to keep your bike clean you know billionists really did a good job of kind of just uh yeah supporting us and, and and teaching us you know when we're still young kids you know i mean 15 you know 15 year old kids going over to europe it's it's uh it's a big deal at the time and that kind of sets us up for going into the juniors when we we'd go over and then, you know, you're doing big races, uh, you know, like pays to vote and and Trofeo Carlsberg and these big junior nations cups where there's guys from all over Europe and, um, guys that are, you know, already going to big under 23 teams. And, you know, then you're thinking about the world championships and it all just kind of builds on top of each other and just gets bigger and bigger. Um, but USA cycling did a really good job of supporting us and getting us over there and just giving us the exposure. Um, to get into those nation cup races, because that's really the only way you can, you can see if you're good enough, you know, coming from the U S because we just don't have that same level of competition. And, and that's, those are the races that that the pro teams look at to, to pick their riders. So it, it really, uh, yeah, it's important to go over there and show yourself. And that's what USA cycling helps the riders do. And like you said, they have that, that base set up in Sittered, um, where they've been based out of for a couple of years now. And, um, obviously with COVID the past few years, it was, you know, I think they had a dip there where there were a few years where funding was a bit, a bit, uh, a bit dry, but I mean, this past year or two I think they've stepped things back up and the, the junior and under 23 programs are running again. And even at the worlds, we had really, really good support. You know, we had, you know, a nice, uh, like, uh, set there where the whole road team was staying and we had, you know, good support with, uh, cooks and, and swan years and, um, TJ Van Garden was our director. So, yeah, they definitely put in a lot of effort. And uh, especially for the young guys, it's it's incredible. You know, there's opportunities.
1: So you would say that um, all that uh, living over there, training over there, did lead into you winning 2019 years plus 20 right, for the sport um, category? There would be like some logic steps leading up to that? Yeah, yeah, definitely.
2: It. Uh, I mean, as a junior, um, I was pretty... I was always in that top, uh, kind of top five, top 10, um, zone. You know, I didn't win too many races when I was a junior, but I was always kind of at the front of the race. Um, and then when I graduated into, into, Axel Merckx's program and went up to the under 23 races, I, you know, I, I really had no idea what to expect from the level because you go from the juniors where everyone's 17 or 18. And then now, you know, you're doing races where you could be racing guys that are 22, which is, seems pretty old when you're, uh, you know, when you're, when you're a 18 year old kid. So yeah, it was uh, a big change, but you know, I just, uh, was able to integrate into the new level of racing pretty quick. And yeah, I think Liege was, I was in April, so only a month or two into my season. And, uh, you know, I was able to pull off a pretty big win straight off the bat, um, as a first year under 23. So that really kind of gave me the confidence that I needed to, to know that I could perform at that level.
0: Yeah. No one wins Liège-Bastogne-Liège in any category um, without having the talent to do it. So congratulations on that. But I, I now I need to go back to that purple patch. You're feeling good. You're still rolling. Do you have any more races planned? Or are you going to come back and do the Maryland Cycling Classic, the races up in Canada? Or are you going to stay over in Europe?
2: Yeah, I've got a few... Uh, I think i've got about eight race days left for the year so uh i won't be doing the maryland classic but i i am going to go over for quebec and montreal my my next race is uh beamer side classics and the deutschland tour in uh over in germany which i'm sure jens knows pretty well um, i be there <laughs> cool yeah i'll see you there and uh yeah so that's next up for me i think uh the beamer side classics is on the 20th um so i have uh, just under two weeks until until that race and then after that it's straight over to canada for for the two one-day races and then after that i'll come back to europe and and finish my season off in uh, with the italian one-day races at the end of the year so yeah i'm, I'm pretty excited i think all these races are going to suit me pretty well now especially you know quebec and montreal i'm really looking forward to and i'm just you know taking it day by day and doing my training and trying to recover properly. And, uh, yeah, we'll see how long this form lasts after the tour, but, um, yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty motivated. I mean, I think I really, you know, a lot of guys were talking about how they were, you know, so tired or they just like wanted to go home after the tour. But I think you you know, I, I was really motivated when I left and I just wanted to, to get back training right away. So I think, you know, these having some goals, goals at the end of the season, like, uh, yeah, Quebec and Montreal and these races that suit me pretty well. It's, it's kind of uh yeah, kept that fire in my uh, fire in my belly for the rest of these seasons. So I'm I'm, I'm pretty ex- looking forward to these races that are coming up now. Hey, Yenzi, he just said the T
0: word after the Tour de France twice. Training, I know. I know what you actually want to go out and train like for us. It was rest or race. That was it. Like, there was no more training training days. There was no more 40-20s. There was no more intervals. It was like, I'm racing or I'm resting. That's it. But, yeah, you you, you're, you are definitely in the purplest of purple patches
2: if you have the morale to go out training this time of year. So, good on you, man. Yeah, and I, I think it definitely helped having San Sebastian so soon, uh, so soon after the tour. And then the Worlds a week later, you know, it didn't really give me time to to come home and, you know, think about it too much. You know, I was... Unpacking my bag from the tour, and then the next minute I was packing it again to head off to San Sebastian. So, I think having that that goal or that objective kind of in the near term, right after the tour, was good for me because it kept me motivated and yeah, kind of kept me on track and and uh, you know had a just you know doing those two hundred plus kilometer races, it it, you know that that's more than enough training. So I think that really helped me just keep ticking over after the tour.
1: Eight race days left. Where will you go on holiday in the off season? Just an easy question now for
2: you. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure yet. I haven't I haven't officially decided uh where I'll be heading uh on a vacation. But uh yeah, after Lombardy I'll head head back to the US, um, head back home to, to Los Angeles and that's a, that's about as much vacation as I need, to be honest. I mean, after spending the whole uh most of the season in Europe just going home seems like a vacation, so yeah i'll just soak it up and spend some time with the family and and go see some old friends and enjoy the weather in la and yeah just relax that's all i need um
1: non cycling related what does the number 46 mean to you non cycling because i know exactly what it is because i'm a big fan of that as well i'm i'm just curious how how uh
2: you you knew about that or came up with that number but uh yeah 46 is a big number uh for me and my dad um obviously 46 is valentino rossi um the most uh iconic MotoGP racer of all time and that's uh yeah as long as i can remember my dad and i were always watching moto gp races on the weekend and uh 46 was always a number you know whether it was soccer or baseball or any school event where I had to choose a number, it was always forty-six, um, and yeah, that's uh, that's that's
1: my number. But I, how did how did you know about that? Well, we know that uh, you're a fan of Valentino Rossi and uh, Il Dottore. He always had the number forty-six, and I followed that for a while. What is he? Nine times world champion in all categories. I mean, like you say, he is gotta be the he's gotta be the Eddie Merckx of motorsports or of of motor you know motor racing. Yeah. So yeah, I'm a big fan of him as well.
0: Well, after your long, hard, successful season, you deserve that rest and you deserve that rest right now as well. Kevin, thank you so much for coming on Bobby and Yens today. It's been an absolute pleasure watching you, talking to you, and just wish you all the best of luck in your in
2: your future. And also from my side, thanks a million for being our guest. It was awesome. <laughs> no worries. Thanks, Jens and, and Bobby. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah,
1: have a good one, guys. Well, that's all our time for this week. Huge thanks to Kevin for being our guest. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show was a Velo production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne and this episode was edited by Kirk Warner. Remember, you can watch this and every
0: episode of Bobby and Jens in video on the Outside Watch
1: YouTube channel. The World Championships course has been called the hardest in history. What is the hardest day on a bike you have witnessed? Let us know by messaging us at Bobby and Jens on Twitter and Instagram.